Well, welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 32, The English Swarm Over South Africa. I borrowed the title from a chapter in Christian de Wet's book published in 1902. And this week, we will prepare to march with British Army Commander-in-Chief Lord Roberts towards his goal, Pretoria. It is also a perfect moment to take a closer look at some of the international soldiers fighting on the side of the Boers and spend some time with the nice rates in the saddle and sniping at the British as they roll across the felt. First though, just a quick thank you to all listeners who've sent me messages of support and for your suggestions. There are too many to mention all, but in particular to Stoffel Nell for background and research material. Thank you for sharing, it's helped greatly. And Kevin Jackson, who sent photographs of a Boer War Memorial in Nelson, New Zealand's South Island. I've loaded these on the website and the Facebook page. Thanks so much. To Mike in the US, who's asked for more maps to be published on the website, I've scanned a few more and other interesting tidbits, including adverts of the time of the war. And you can find them at the abwarpodcast.com website this week. To Jacques Hollands, who's been so supportive, as well as Lo De Beer, Thanks for the review. And Bill Yo, thank you for the wonderful words and messages. So to Chantal uh, Heldenhuis, thank you, along with Daniel Kuevash Fish. I hope I've pronounced your name correctly and sorry if I haven't. The interest in this series has really gone global, which is both surprising and heartwarming. I've had many downloads from places like Singapore and even Seoul in South Korea, which was completely unexpected. So back to this week's episode. There's a disconnect here between the goal and what really accounts for victory. As with other commanders, Lord Roberts, who now leads a large army of 50,000 men, believes once Pretoria is taken, the Boers will be beaten. During April and much of May 1900, small-scale skirmishes dominate this war. Boer commander Euster, who'd held Uppington, had then made a strategic withdrawal to the Orange River through what's known as Griqualunt and eventually into the Transvaal. It's also time to investigate the lesser-known stories around the war, with its international significance at the time largely forgotten as we forge ahead in the 21st century. For example, Canadian troops were the main force known as the Karoo Expedition between March and April 1900, but disease played havoc. On the way into the Karoo, a dozen men fell ill and one died, but by the time they'd exited the semi-desert Karoo in March, 50 men were sick with dysentery and entric. A number of horses had given out. They had to be shot, with many of the mounted infantry in the Canadian 1st Battalion mounted rifles preferring to walk alongside the emaciated horses, and in some cases feeding them hard-tack biscuits and suffering hunger instead themselves. During this campaign, the small contingent marched 1,400 kilometers, but fired only one shot in anger. Yet it was remembered by the Canadians as one of the most difficult periods for them in the Anglo-Boer War, with the marches through semi-desert waterless wastelands where there was no food and the inhabitants, both black and white, were unwelcoming in the harsh Karoo landscape. The environment there at times appears as lifeless as Mars, it's interspersed with dry river beds and a heat haze that goes on forever. There's virtually no water. I mention the Canadians because they were very important in the coming weeks, as between the 21st of April and 19th of May, the Mounted Infantry Unit formed the core of the coming force sent to relieve the siege of Mafeking, for example. 
Another Canadian division was sent by ship from Cape Town to the port of Beira in Portuguese East Africa, from where they went by rail to Marandelas in the then Rhodesia, ending up in Bulawayo, where they joined Colonel Plumer's force uh, surrounding the Boers and cutting off any retreat to the north. The Boers had not been idle over this period. As we heard last week, Christian de Vett had withdrawn from Vepina to Tabanchi near Basutaland, or the Lesotho border as we know it these days. De Vett writes, On April 25th, we arrived in Alexandria, six miles from Tabanju. The latter place was already occupied by English outposts. General Philip Boerter now joined me. He had been engaging the enemy in the triangle formed by Brantford, Bloemfontein and Tabanju. My commandos numbered 4,000 men, and I decided it was time to concentrate my forces. Lord Roberts had sent mobile units to the east of Bloemfontein in an attempt to outflank the Boers, and although his first attempt failed, the second succeeded after a fierce fight. One of the most accomplished Boer generals, General Delaray, was also forced to retreat north at this time to avoid capture. We'll hear more about him a little later in this podcast. At the same time, de Wett realized that Roberts would head on to Kronstadt, which is on the main railway line in the Orange Free State to Johannesburg and Pretoria, and planned operating in their rear to destabilize their logistics. De Wett was also highly aware of something singularly important to the Boers that he called the Free State Granary. This lay in the area around Ladybrand, Fixburg and Bethlehem, which were being reaped by Boer women and black workers as well, as the men were away fighting. In spite of the fact that the British had begun to destroy crops after seizing as much as possible, Debet writes, There was still an abundant harvest, perhaps the best we had ever seen, and it happened that whilst the men were at the front, the housewives could feed the horses in the stable. But Lord Roberts, acting on the advice of unfaithful burghers, laid his hand upon the housewives' work and burnt the grain that they had stored. Meanwhile, Lord Roberts' army was moving towards Kronstadt, as De Wett guessed. Singing their famous song, We are marching to Pretoria, and covered in a layer of red dust. They've just set off from Bloemfontein, where they've gathered for six weeks. But they'd also proven that a large army supplied with bad water and suffering from poor hygiene is exposed to disease, typhoid fever, dysentery, enteric fever, malaria, influenza. The sight of this army was something to behold. It stretched across a front of nearly 40 kilometres on both sides of the main railway line, a massive, unstoppable procession of guns, men and horses heading for Johannesburg and Pretoria. Roberts was in command with General French's cavalry on his left and Hamilton's heavily armed column on his right. At the same time, two infantry divisions under Lieutenant General Methuen and Sir Archibald Hunter had left Kimberley and were marching north along the railway track to Rhodesia. A classic pincer movement was building up here, with Roberts leading the charge up the middle. And on the eastern front in Natal, the peace had again been shattered, with General Buller's reinforced expeditionary army now underway, making straight towards the Boers encamped on the mountains around Biggersburg and the Drakensberg. War reporter Winston Churchill wrote a story for the Morning Post newspaper in Britain describing the English breaking through everywhere, and he said, As an iron bar might smash thin ice with scarcely any shock. 
In a word, the Boers didn't stand a chance and were desperately short of men and material. The new strategy, suggested by De Vette, was to allow the British past and then cut them off from their supply lines. It's what the Russians were to do to the German army during Operation Barbarossa in 1941 through to 1944, where Hitler's dash for Moscow left him exposed. But de Wett faced opposition from the Transvaalers, who didn't want the British swarming all over their country. Their new commandant was General Louis Boerter, who'd come from Natal to lead the defence in person. His plan was also simple. Burn the felt so that the British would be visible against the blackened plains in their khaki uniforms, and then use their long tom cannon from miles away to pepper the British army as it moved in the open expanse of South Africa's felt. President Steyn of the Free State agreed with him and recalled De Wett, preferring continued defensive positions as the British rolled north to sniping at their rear guard. De Wett was still unaware of these decisions when he stopped at the historic Sand River with his commando in late April. The Sand River is where a convention had been signed in 1852 with the British who had allowed the Boers to remain in control of the Transvaal. The British reversed these terms in 1877 until Gladstone, the British Prime Minister, acknowledged Boer independence after the Battle of Majuba in 1881. As we know, that convention was once again broken with the coming of war in 1899. De Wet bivouacked at the Sand River and in his book Three Years' War was clearly struck by its significance. Here, on the banks of this river, which was so pregnant with meaning, we should stand, so I thought, and hold the English at bay. But alas, the name with all its memories did not check the enemy's advance. Roberts was to arrive at the new free state capital, Kronstadt, by the 12th of May, and this series is following the weeks of the war, as you probably realised. So in this interregnum, the end of April, beginning of May, let's talk a little about the international mercenaries who flooded into South Africa, mostly to fight on the side of the Boers. The first reaction to these men was not always positive. If you remember our earlier podcasts, when the mercenaries arrived in Pretoria, they began looting farms instead of preparing to fight the British, and the Afrikaners were not entirely enamoured by these hard men. Some included criminals lurking in their ranks, but also adventurers and romantics who turned out to fight against the British for their own personal reasons. So who were these international fighters? We've already heard about the Italians, French, Americans, Irish, Swedes, Norwegians, and even Russians, Turks, and Germans. Most of the foreigners were scattered throughout the Boer forces, but there were a number who from the first formed nationality units of their own. The German and Dutch contingents had been the largest, numbering around 200 men each, but they had suffered severely at Ilanslachter, if you remember. The Scandinavian unit had fought bravely but recklessly at Marchesfontein and had been practically exterminated there. One of the best of the foreign units was the Italian contingent led by an adventurer named Cumilo Ricciardi. He had recently fought against the Americans in the Philippines and he favoured a policy of taking no prisoners. In the latter part of the war, he specialised in blowing up bridges. Hundreds of Americans fought for the Boers, although many of these had been born in Ireland or were of Irish extraction. In the same way that in the 20th century, the Irish of Boston, for example, who supported the Irish Republican Army against the English, so too these Americans who hated the English and decided to travel to South Africa for revenge. 
These Americans joined a unit led by John Y. Fillmore Blake, a huge man who habitually dressed in cowboy costume. Born in Missouri, he had graduated from West Point in 1880 and served with the 6th United States Cavalry in the far west USA fighting Indians. He called himself Colonel, although he had never risen above the rank of First Lieutenant in the American Army. Unlike most foreign volunteers who went home after a few months, Blake stayed on and fought to the end, and that's still two years away. Blake's second-in-command was John McBride, whom Denise Reitz described as a brave but ugly red-headed little man. McBride married Maud Gonne after the Boer War. She was an Irish revolutionary, and they both took part in the Easter Rebellion in Dublin in 1916, but John McBride was caught and executed by the British. So he survived an African war, dysentery, typhoid, shellfire, snipers, great battles, but couldn't survive sectarianism and died a hero back home. Among other Americans were J.H. King, known as Dynamite Dick, and James Foster, the Arizona Kid, described as a typical cowboy, frolicsome, lithe and reckless, always ready for any excitement to take part in any sort of enterprise, no matter what desperate chances were involved. The Arizona Kid, like many American volunteers on both sides, had come to South Africa with a shipment of mules. British purchasing agents, buying horses and mules in the American West, advertised for men to tend the animals on the long voyage to the southern tip of Africa, offering to pay a round-trip passage, New Orleans to Cape Town, free berth plus a payment of $15 upon landing. Many men made it a one-way trip. The entire squadron of the South African light horse was composed of Texas cowboys and muleteers. One man who had served with Roosevelt's Rough Riders in Cuba wrote to Roosevelt from South Africa saying, Dear Teddy, I came over here meaning to join the Boers, who I was told were Republicans fighting monarchists. But when I got here, I found the Boers talked Dutch, while the Britishers talked English. So I joined the latter. Another American, J.A. Hassel, formed the eponymous Hassel American Scouts. He had been given full citizenship by the Transvaal Volksraad in recognition of his services during the Jameson Raid in 1896. That's when Cecil John Rhodes sought to overthrow the Transvaal government in an insurrection, but failed. Hassel saw action in a number of small battles and skirmishes during the Anglo-Boer War, including one coming up in June, which we'll touch on a little later, other than to say among those killed by Hassel's Americans at a bridge at the famous Sunt River in that conflict was Louis Irving Seymour, age 39, of Her Britannic Majesty's Railway Pioneer Regiment, who also happened to be an American citizen. So as you can see, an American unit killed an American fighting for the British. One of the significant facts about the Anglo-Boer War is that it's one of the few times since the Civil War that Americans fought each other so directly and knowingly in a conventional conflict. There's one incident in particular that sums up the oddly international war and its effects. A Frenchman called Villebois de Moriol was given permission to try blowing up a bridge over the Moda River at one point. With around 100 foreigners, mostly French, some Germans, and 25 Boers, he set off for Bosov under the impression that this bridge was likely defended. On the way, they would set up camp, and one German observer, Captain Reichmann, was amused to see this group sitting together at, in the evenings, alternatively singing the Marseille and then Wacht am Rhein. 
Unfortunately for our multinational unit, Methuen, the British commander in the area, had ordered a concentration of six and a half battalions of infantry, a thousand mounted men, and 22 guns at the town near Bosov. Methuen was alerted and dispatched 750 troopers and a battery to take him. The Boers bolted before they were surrounded. The foreigners stayed and fought, though, until Villebois de Morieux fell, mortally wounded by a shell fragment which struck him on the head. Methuen, though, buried him with full military honours. By late 1900, Denise Reitz has been waiting in the Biggersburg in Natal since the British took Ladysmith. Reitz, if you remember, is a 17-year-old Boer who's been fighting since the start of war in October 1899. On April 30th, he and his three brothers, along with a black worker called Charlie, entrained for the Free State. They got within 100 kilometers of Bloemfontein when the train ground to a halt near the Fet River as the British were moving up the line from the south. The five unshipped their horses and camped beside the track until daybreak and the following morning starting south. They then ran into a mounted unit of young Boers called the Africana Cavalry Corps, ACC, and enrolled themselves immediately. This serves to explain how each Boer was really left up to his own devices, about which unit they should fall into, and who to support and for how long. After joining the ACC, they heard distant cannons firing, and with around 100 men, they rushed to a nearby battle. Rates says, We spent the morning getting ready, and that afternoon we trekked off, riding south through the Fet River, towards the sound of the distant gunfire that we could now hear on the wind. Eventually, they ride into a large Boer commando, withdrawing from the British, who rolling northwards along both sides of the railway line. We've already heard how this grand army is vast, and pushing Boer soldiers ahead of the three brigades like snow before a plough. Rates, his brothers, and Charlie are about to meet the famous General de la Rey, and the 17-year-old writes, We rode on until midnight. When we came to where General Delaray was halted with the Transvaal commandos, we found him squatted by a small fire, a splendid-looking old man with a hawk-like nose and fierce black eyes. Beside him was his brother, nursing an arm shattered by a bullet that afternoon. Delaray describes how the British army captured General Cornier at Pardeberg and their taking of Bloemfontein. He also says the demoralised state of the commandos and the lack of defensive cover in this bare region means the Boers have very little hope of stopping the Grand Army. And the weather is changing. It's May, and in the high felt of South Africa, temperatures drop suddenly at night, and rates and a small group begin to suffer. Since we had come south, the weather had turned bitterly cold, and we felt the change from the warmer climate of Natal. For months, we were not to spend one really comfortable night until summer came round again, and on this particular night, we sat with our blankets wrapped around our shoulders, shivering till daybreak, for the temperature was below zero. He and his brothers and Charlie bump into the British, describing how they are approaching with mounted scouts ahead of the dense masses on the plain. First came a screen of horsemen, then behind, a multitude of infantry, guns and wagons, throwing up huge clouds of dust. Like locusts on the land, the British are moving steadily, with poor women and children on thousands of wagons fleeing ahead of this grand army. Reitz watches and helps fight the incursions of mounted infantry trying to capture the Boer wagons. General Louis Boerter is standing at the Fet River, which they reach as they retreat north. 
and with Boerter is General Delaray. Reitz watches the two famous leaders. Boerter had hurried from Natal to take a closer look at the advancing British army. It's at the Fet River that the Boers decide to put up another fight. Reitz and his brothers send Charlie to the rear, with spare kit loaded onto the Basutu pony with which they've been travelling around South Africa. The British fire on the Boer positions, arranged along the Fet River. They take many casualties. Reitz calls the artillery barrage heavy, similar to barrages he'd faced in Natal, and says, The shelling was not confined to our portion of the line, but ran up and down like a piano as far as the bridge and back again. The Afrikaner Cavalry Corps suffer six dead, 15 wounded, over 20% casualties, in other words. The dead are left lying on the soft sand, while the wounded are pushed onto their horses and told to ride away as best they can. Reitz's younger brother, who's 16, is shot as the ACC scramble to get away from the British infantry charge. We were heavily fired on, but reached sanctuary, with only two or three men down and a few wounded, including my younger brother Arndt, with a scalp wound from a glancing rifle bullet. Reitz is now based at the extreme end of the Boer line, and the British have outflanked their defences. They're in real danger of being overrun. Things speed up. We fronted round to meet them, but the sinking sun was straight in our eyes, making accurate shooting difficult. When the soldiers came swarming towards us at short range, another stampede took place. By the time I was in the saddle, the nearest infantryman was so close, I could see their faces and the brass buttons on their tunics, but they were blown with running, and their aim was poor. Still, his eldest brother's pony was shot through the body from saddle flap to saddle flap, and Reitz says in his understated way, But the plucky little animal carried him a thousand yards before he fell dead. It's chaos. Riderless horses are mingling with the stampeding mounted units, and his brother finds another horse, throws himself on as bullets and shells whiz and crash close by, and they manage to gallop off into the darkness. The ACC suffered over 30 men killed and wounded at the end of that day. Their casualty rate now topped 30%. Finally, they find Charlie, who's waiting in the rear, and after an emotional reunion, they continue fleeing, finally reaching the Sand River. Things are gathering speed around the Boers. Before an Irishman, for example, could dynamite the bridge over the Sand River, he was shot by a fast-moving British mounted unit. Reitz and his brothers skirt the river and then catch a small group of Canadians, shooting two off their horses. Reitz says, I rode up to have a look at them. They were both Canadians, badly wounded, one of whom told me that many thousands of their people, as well as Australians and other colonial forces, had volunteered for the war, as if the odds against us were not heavy enough already. And that was the truth. The Boers for all the ingenuity and the anarchic guerrilla war principles, their strategic offensive, tactical defensive brilliance, still faced an empire upon which, at least at this point, the sun never set. Lord Roberts's grand army was sweeping onwards, heading towards Kruenstadt as Reitz and his brothers fired pot shots and added to the British infantry misery by picking off soldiers here and there. But the momentum was up, and so was the game, at least for now. So we'll call a halt to proceedings and set up a stopper group on our trail, lay a few anti-personnel mines and booby traps, and then settle in just before the evening light fails to allow our eyes time to understand the lie of the land. Next week, we'll hear more about Roberts's march 
as he enters Kronstadt, then leaves almost immediately. The big prize awaits the British army, and it's the Transvaal capital, Pretoria. So till then, please remember to rate the podcast, have a look at our website, abwarpodcast.com, and please contact me either on Facebook, Anglo Boer War Podcast, or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Goodbye. Pizarri Maresa le cui dirkenseu me scadet ek vier gekrei. En zonder gedal langs die moeir vierse val het sê vroorlogs dage blei. O bring me terug na die oud Transval, daar waar me sare woon.